Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. Except right now, Sam is away and I am continuing in a, uh, a variation of our traditional format. So those of you who listen regularly will have, uh, will have heard last time that, um, that Sam has had to take a little bit of a break. And in his absence, we are going to be changing the format a little bit because what would it be without Sam? So we're, we're changing it up and we're going to be taking a little bit of a look inside the walls of Arrow, inside Arrow Towers. And so for this first of the Arrow Insider interviews, I'm joined by our fantastic editor um, and producer, Mike Hewitt, who allows me to say on air, because this gets cut out every time. This bit may, may get cut out, Dan, yeah. Carry on, carry on, I'm not going to interrupt. Hello, Mike. <laughs> hello, hello, Dan. <laughs> Which is how we start every recording, but then Mike snips it all out. So. <laughs> <laughs> hello, Dan, and yeah, wow, it uh, feels good to be on the podcast after listening to your voice for 44 episodes. <laughs> Jesus. Trimming out all the ums, and um, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. um. <laughs> and um, yeah, well, exactly, there you go. It's now I understand so how easy, easy it is oh, to say Sitting there in your ivory tower. <laughs> so, Mike, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about? I mean, obviously they know your name because we refer to you as our as our editor. But but what's your your regular job at Arrow? Yeah, so I'm uh, Mike Hewitt, and uh, I head up the marketing at Arrow Films, uh, looking after Arrow Video, Arrow Academy, Arrow TV. Uh, also looking after the PR, the social events, and uh, various other elements. Of our day-to-day function, but yeah, essentially head up the marketing team. Um, and you, if correct me if I'm wrong, but you're before you moved into the marketing department, you were in acquisitions. Is that correct? Uh, no, I've never actually worked in acquisitions per se. I've worked across previous companies. I've always had an involvement in acquisitions, so I, I've always had a hand in in looking for my my passion is new release films. And don't get me wrong, I love our catalogue output, but I tend to have a big hand at Arrow. Uh, with helping um, with uh, looking for new new content that we have. Oh, oh well, so that's very appropriate. Obviously, uh, as we go forwards with this uh, this sort of like interstitial version of the podcast, uh, I'm going to be talking to different people at Arrow about the different uh, stages in the procurement and mm-hmm. release of a film. Obviously, uh, you've just released a, a film very close to my heart, uh, Lords of Chaos. Lords of Chaos. Lords Hells. of Chaos. Which, uh, obviously, you've been very close to. As you say, you are your interests are very much in the in the newer arena, like what you can bring to Arrow from, from new releases. So, obviously, marketing has to have... Uh, like, uh, when, when a film is purchased, it has to be sellable. That's, you know, as a label, that's something you have to do. How do you find that fine line between something that uh, that has a uniquely Arrow flavour to it, but also can be marketed without the um, the sort of the old school cool that comes with a lot of the Arrow catalogue titles? Yeah, very, very interesting question. I mean... We always we, we currently look for really good, fresh, bold, original genre voices. I think, you know, that's what we're really interested in at Arrow and it's something that we kicked off back probably about two or three years ago, I think. We are the flesh was our first new release on the label. Uh, and it was a little bit of a gamble. Uh, but we kind of wanted to bring a, a contemporary feel, contemporary feel to the label. Look, don't get me wrong, we all love the catalogue line that we do at Arrow Video, but there are so many new films being made nowadays and so many interesting directors, filmmakers, people with voices that, you know, we wanted to 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 get, you know, amidst that a little bit. And, you know, we we, we sort of ventured with We Are The Flesh and uh, we picked up a couple of others. Um, there is Hounds of Love, which, you know, I absolutely adore that we put on our label. Um, recently, Benson and Moorhead's The Endless, um, phenomenal film. The Villainess, which is a great Asian epic. And, yeah, we, we want to sort of gradually build, you know, a, a growing library that accompanies our catalogue releasing. I mean, I guess there's a, there's a finite number of classic catalogue films, and there's a, there's a certain amount of competition out there for the procurement of those. When you settle on a title that you feel is a good fit for Arrow, how do you go about, if it's an older film, or, or, or even a modern film, how do you go about negotiating, like pitching Arrow as a distribution company? How do you say that they are a good fit for that film? Yeah, and as I say, I sort of I work in marketing, so I'm not fully across the acquisitions. Uh, we need to be 
uh, you know, maybe you can get we can get Kevin on the, uh, a future podcast to talk about the catalog acquisitions because that's really his area of expertise. And alongside Fran, our director of content and production, you know, they they essentially shape our, our catalog slate, as it were. And that that's you know through various sources. You know, you and Kant, one of our uh, producers, he's phenomenal at finding or un- uncovering long lost gems. That's his area. Um, Kev's amazing at, you know, like looking at Asian films or, you know, uh, we all at Arrows kind of have, you know, a, a, a certain level of expertise. Uh, and the catalogue is something that we don't really in marketing get involved with at the acquisition stage, at least. But but new release films require more marketing. You know, the, it's easy to sort of say uh, there's a Candyman coming out because everybody knows Candyman. And it's like, oh, great, fantastic. Or but no one really knows what Lords of Chaos is. So it requires a marketing input into what we want to buy on new release. So what would you what do you look for? Like, how would you what would you zone in on? with a new product uh, I, I assume you don't exclusively choose a product because it's innately commercial you choose it because it speaks to you you choose it because it's it's exciting so when you are handed a project like that uh because one of your knowledgeable team has has hunted out this this product how do you then look to explain that to the arrow audience and and beyond their audience as well because obviously when you do cinematic releases you want it to be a, a, a wider sell than just the core audience. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, there are a couple of examples that I can uh, look back on. So The Endless was one that sort of uh, came across as a screening link. So generally, we, for new release, we're, we're always scouting what's happening on the festival circuit. And if we can't make that festival ourselves, whether that be Cannes or Berlin or Toronto or you know, a couple of the others that we do regularly each year. If we if we can't make the festivals, we'll always, like, chase for a screening link if, if we hear of something. All sales agents are always sending us screening links. So there's a big filtration system that goes down because, you know, there are a lot of good films out there. There are a lot of not-so-good films, and then there are occasionally just films that you make, you go, wow, this, this is something that, you know, we should really look at. And The Endless was one, especially. I remember watching that. And... Uh, watching a screener of a film you always start and sort of like i don't know how you know you you may watch screeners but you know we get sent a screening link we watch it on our computers and we start with a full screen and usually within about 15 20 minutes you might go to a minimized window and do other <laughs> things on the side but with endless that was a definite full screen captured your attention it's like okay yeah that this is something this is something that feels arrow it feels feels original feels bold it feels fresh Going back to those sort of things, you know, it's uh, it's very much uh, an independent film. We're an independent company, so you know it mapped to that. And uh, in Cannes last year, uh, Fran, our director of content, saw Climax, and you know that was another uh, moment. You know, myself and Kev went went along, and we were lucky enough to be out in Cannes. We went to a second screening, and that just blew us away. And you know, you get those moments where you think, yes, th- this is a good arrow film. So with something like the endless, I mean, you say you saw that on a screening link, so that was a that wasn't something you saw that you picked up at a festival, but presumably that was something that I mean they were receiving other offers. So as a yeah, two prong question, um, firstly, how did you convince them that Arrow was a good fit for them, and secondly, um, was it always your plan to bundle resolution with it? Like, was that part of the pitch? Because Res- um, Resolution's a fantastic movie, but the idea of licensing an entire other film by these directors is kind of like I've, I don't think I've ever seen anyone else do that. Yeah, yeah. What was the first part again? <laughs> <laughs> How did yeah, you the first part. Yeah, the first Justin part. I can't really talk about. Was... We had our acquisitions director who just hounded and hounded and hounded and said, you know, we ha- we had to have this film. We had to have this film. He just um, stood outside their their apartment with a boombox over his head. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had signs. He he hired cows to sit David Lynch style on the corner. No, I mean, uh, yeah, he just hounded and said, you know, we have to have this film. And uh, and when it came to putting the release plan together, you know, we always well we try and all get to sit in a group together arrow and just think all right what can we do about this release what what can we do you know the extras uh, there is important to us as you know the film itself and that that's definitely true on the catalog and we definitely want to bring that to the new release side of things and we always want to add extra value wherever possible and i'd actually not seen the res- resolution and after watching the endless and, and hearing that i had links to resolution i hunted it out watched it and thought oh my god this is so perfect how can you not have this 
as part of the endless release. They're so intrinsically tied together. And we did a bit of research and we were looking into potentially buying um, what you call in the industry spindle stock from the distributor who owned the film. And you would, you know, buy just the discs, not not the sort of boxes, and you would clear with them to be able to put the discs in and, you know, at a certain price. Uh, and it seemed that there was no UK distributor or, or that they no longer existed. So a little bit more research and we found the global uh, sales agent and we asked them if we could potentially license it. And they were like, hey, sounds a great idea. Yeah, not a problem. And it was all fairly straightforward in the end, you know, and we worked out, you know, the right deal terms. And yeah, and yeah, really, really, really pleased that came together. Well, uh, Justin and Aaron mentioned uh, I got to interview them for the for the podcast a little while ago, and they um, they mentioned how like unbelievably pleased they were <laughs> that you'd done that. So obviously, it resonated very well with them as uh, creators of your content. Um, so when sorry, just to backtrack a little bit, you say uh, spindle content, which is not not a term I've heard before. That sounds like like if they said, oh well, we've got like. 412 discs left would you have done a limited edition of 412 is that the thing and then secondly was it your idea then to include uh resolution uh, yeah resolution was my idea in, in that instance very very fucking um, good idea but yeah we we never got faced with that choice uh unfortunately uh with the spindle stock but yeah no we wouldn't be against having done doing something like that so um, you've talked about, uh, you know, being sent screeners or seeing stuff at festivals. How did you first see Lords of Chaos? Uh, Lords of Chaos, we saw or, uh, we saw back in January last year, January 2018. So it debuted at Sundance, as you probably know, having worked on the, yeah. the, the film itself. And, oh, my God, I will get to this anyway. I so couldn't talk to you about this for so long. And it was so burning me up because we we've known each other a while haven't we? yeah, yeah good yeah, good yeah. 10 years or so and so laws of chaos we saw back in january and it, it debuted at sundance and we we chased it down and we and we wanted to see it me especially actually in this instance because the film for me has has a has a great resonance with with who i was growing up and, and when this happened it was 1993 and and i was at art college i was a huge metal fan i was a kerrang reader and oh my god i read about this norwegian black metal stuff and it was like whoa that's dark and i kind of never really got into hugely the black metal scene although i was aware of it i was kind of remained on the periphery but that story stuck with me and definitely that cover image of kerrang and uh anyway so Hearing about the film, it, it definitely had, you know, something that I wanted to, to, to have a look at. And it felt like it was a right fit for our video. We hunted out a screening link and I watched it and, oh my God, it blew me away. Absolutely blew me. It's one of those instances where you're watching at home alone, as you often do, sort of with screening links. And yeah, it just absolutely blew me away. And I immediately got in touch with a couple of our key guys at work, especially Daniel Perry, who's our head of sales. He's a huge, huge musician fan, loves this sort of metal. Said, you guys, you've got to check this out. And he he was the second main champion of it. Um, and it spread through Arrow like wildfire because a lot of our team are sort of aware of the scene and, and have a passion for the scene and have an understanding of the scene. James Blackford, who's producing our disc for the release, he plays in the band Amulet, and he knows Mayhem's tour manager. You know, so he had huge involvement. Kevin Lambert, our head of catalogue, huge metal fan. And all of a sudden, it just, wow, you know, we, we wanted this one. And we pitched, and we pitched hard. And we wrote a document. And then we went through about eight or nine months of just, it went through industry movings and machinations. It was... Uh, there were there were there were some sort of issues that we weren't fully aware of, but we couldn't close a deal. And then all of a sudden, it changed sales agent, and it was with a new sales agent. So six months down the line, after chasing it, we had to start all the renegotiations again. And finally, you know, in about uh, September October last year, we, we finally closed on it. And yeah, it took a, it took a long long time to to pick this film up. Wow! Uh, so very gratifying to have finally. <laughs> to, to finally to finally yeah to finally uh got hold of it and uh and, it, and it's been a joy to work on you know and you know there are there are some projects that you really 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 love working on and lords of chaos has been one of those in a way and 
Yeah. So when you when you have a modern title like Lords of Chaos, something that's going to get a cinematic as well as a, a as well as a home entertainment release, how do you work out where to pitch it? Like, what is the what's the logic that goes into deciding like number of screens? Like, is it is it literally you have like a metric? So story time. Uh, my wife worked at Fox International when she was at doing her master's yeah, in LA. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she spent a bunch of time working for a, a Fox executive called Sanford Panich, who is routinely voted the worst boss in Hollywood <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> by various industry magazines. And um, and they had a they had like a, a, a uh, like a spreadsheet uh-huh. Um, that would be like this person's films will make this much opening weekend, and, right? And these and it was like a sort of a, a, a cross reference system where you could work out the predicted gross <laughs> of a of any type of film based on a number of criteria, uh-huh. um, and that would be how they worked out how they were going to market it, when like what quarter they were going to release it, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, pre- because you're not working with the Brad Pitts and the you yeah. know, those names, yeah, yeah. I assume it's a it's a more mystical art. How do you yeah? How do you work out how best to bring these films to the public? Well, yeah, we just spin a wheel, really. <laughs> <laughs> We've got like a wheel of fortune in our meeting room, and whenever we pick up a film, it's like, yay, it's going to DVD. No, um, it's, I don't know how much I can give away. It's uh, it's it's not an exact science. The whole William Goldman, no, nobody knows anything, <laughs> kind of, you know, rings true. You know, um, especially when you pick up a film, you know, you're caught up in your own passion for the film. You can get carried away and, you know, and, and does it have, you know, does it have a marketing appeal? Uh, there's so many considerations that go into it. We, we run a lot of comparative analysis on similar films, how they've done, how they've been received. You know, how do we think, you know, ours is going to be critically received and, uh, essentially, you know, what what is the best route to market? What what do we think? I hate that phrase, route to market, but it's it's kind of true. It's like, uh, to what level of film do we really want to want to support this? And you know, Lords of Chaos. Um, pretty soon on, we came to the fact that we we wanted to give this a good shot. You know, we wanted to give it a full theatrical release because we just felt it deserved that 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 main big theatrical event. So was that not something that you like you had to package when you were pitching to be the distributors? Did you not have to say, "Oh, well, we guarantee X screens for X weeks or whatever like that"? You just say, "We are the people to release it," and they're like, "Okay, well, we trust you. You do what you do." Yeah, you give a broad outline. You don't go into any specifics because you don't want to be locked down to that. But yeah, of course, you give a broad outline, uh, and then you know you you look at it and you look at it at a wider context and where the film is getting released and whether you're on a hold back to a different territory or whatever but yeah this is all getting technical so this bit will go <laughs> no 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 no. technical is exactly what people want yeah like the, i think the whole reason that we've been asked about this because we've had a number of people over the over the like couple of years now that we've yeah. done the podcast say oh i'm more interested i'll be very interested to hear a little bit more about behind the scenes about how these things are chosen uh, and i think that you know we'll get some feedback and maybe we get less technical in coming episodes but i genuinely think that technical is what people want they want cool. to know what the nuts and bolts are of uh, of how these things come to their well, screens we can go technical yeah, yeah let's go technical <laughs> so so, uh, so let me ask you a, a a technical question based on what you just said right and if you can't answer it i completely understand because industry secrets are industry secrets but when you say oh we did cost benefit analysis based on other projects that we felt fit the mold of this yeah. of this film so what else would you have looked at when trying to work out how you would distribute something like Laws of Chaos. Because, like, for me, as, you know, not a full outsider, but someone who isn't involved in the marketing of these things, I can't think of anything else that really fits, not in recent memory at least, that really fits the mould of Laws of Chaos. So how would you, how would, what would you look at to work that out? Hmm. I can't remember what comps we looked at. I think Green Room was, was a recent comp that okay. was tonally... Right, films, and films in which people get cut on the limb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anything with music in, really. Bohemian Rhapsody, we can't say. Are you serious? Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, I, we we look for films that are tonally sort of similar. I love Greek, 
I love Green Room. Yeah, no, Green Room's That's great. That's a very good double bill. Lords yeah. Of Chaos and Green Room it would be. are a fucking great double bill. <laughs> it, it would be, wouldn't it? They're both, yeah. Uh, Nazi, Nazi punks, fuck off. <laughs> could be the name of that double bill. <laughs> I'd love to do a film called Nazi punks, fuck off, but no. Uh, yeah, Green Room. Yeah, we looked at other things. Raw was a comp uh, that had, uh, had some success. We're looking for... You know, we wanted to uh, we wanted to release theatrically, so then we like tried to look for all right. Well, what what can justify that? What has worked theatrically? And you know, if I'm being honest, it's getting tougher and tougher out there for independent genre films to actually work at the at the cinema for sure, unless it's studio released. So, and it's not for lack of people wanting to see it; it's just for lack of ability to to be able to get it out to the level that you'd want it to be. So. You know, it's hard, and we and we knew Green Room, you know, had had a lot of money spent on it, and we, we can look up what box offices they've done and how many screens they've opened on and which which particular screens have done well. And you do all of this analysis, and, and you, you know, uh, a lot of it is gut, you know, uh, a lot of it is luck. And, yeah, you just think, all right, yeah, we're, we're going to aim for this target, and you sort of go for that target. So you're dealing with something uh, potentially quite sensitive, like the like a lot of the topics that are dealt with in Lords of Chaos, the automatic leaning and some of your contemporary labels that also deal in archive stuff. You know, it's all about it's all about shock. It's all about like yeah, reveling in the exploitation. But then it feels like a little bit of a left turn to go with something that needs to be dealt with with a certain degree of sensitivity. How do you keep that within the feeling of your of your label, but also approach that with a with a degree of sensitivity? Are we talking about the suicide? Uh, specifically about Lords of Chaos and some of the yeah some of the content that's yeah it's uh, it's a sensitive issue and I don't think we fully clocked on first screening how potentially sensitive that was and you know it's something that's uh, that arose as we were working on it uh, and it made us you know understand that yeah we have to be responsible in in this area and you know if if one or two groups are, uh, are calling out for you know, it to be banned or censored as, you know, there was one or two groups doing doing so. Uh, we 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 looked to address that. I mean, we'd already done a bit of prep work into charities, to be fair, but this made us realise, yeah, no, we, we need to get uh, a couple of charities on board on this one. And just luckily, you know, uh, we the BBFC thought as we did that it was fitting with the film. You know, it wasn't it wasn't something exploitative. It, it was it was totally relevant to the film and once the BBFC allowed it to go through, you know, we, we felt that sense of relief that, you know, that, that, that justified our choice in the film as well, you know. It's like a, a validation because yeah. as much faith as you have in it, that can become an echo chamber within the company, presumably. Yeah. Uh, and so when the BBFC say, you know, you know what, this is this is acceptable, it's not obscene, quote unquote, Yeah. then I guess... Well, because like I remember talking to you when I first, when you know, you first told me that mm. you'd, you'd got it. We both kind of assumed it was going to be very difficult to get it released uncut. We did, yeah. And talking to Jonas about the Sundance screening that you've already referenced, they yeah. wanted to show the R-rated version, which mm. is the cut version. And he said, "Well, I'm not bringing the actors. I'm not going to turn up. I'm not going to be present." at it if you're not going to be willing to show the uncut version yeah. and eventually they acquiesced and they showed the uncut version and and that's kind of why it's enjoying the success it's it's enjoying critical and commercial yeah I, i'd like to think so i think you know your interview with jonas that we we did three or four episodes ago you know was was illuminating in that front in the way that you know he wanted to defend that film and you know we, we picked it up and we wanted to defend it at no point did we ever really want to put out a cut version uh, we probably would have done if we'd had to, but you know we definitely didn't want to. And you know uh, that scene is is intense, and it is for a reason. And you know we've we've experienced a couple of you know incidents in one or two screenings that we've had with it. And you've got to be responsible with this. And uh, you know it's in it's in there for a reason. It doesn't glamorize it at all. It makes you know, and I don't want to spoil the film for anyone who hasn't seen it. I know it's only been out a couple of weeks. In the UK cinemas, I know it's been out in the US, but understand that not everybody may have been able to get out and see it, so I'm not going to spoil it. 
but there's no tense in tense sequence in there and it's all down to you <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah i mean obviously i've been wittering about this for a long time because of my involvement in it and my excitement that that like it's my two worlds have conjoined it's fantastic <laughs> well how does it feel for you i mean you must how do you get how is your feelings with with it in the way that you you must you must see this scene having the impact that you kind of wanted it to have but equally yeah do you yeah. have you ever questioned it it's really weird so so i've had two moments in my life where or in my professional life but also in my life because only in my professional life you you'll understand why i'm not bothering to make that distinction uh, in a second i've had two moments in my professional life where my work has has had that kind of reaction uh, i don't in my regular life go around making people throw up i don't think um <laughs> No, so uh, we had a similar thing with the second Human Centipede film. Uh, and at the Cannes screening of yeah, that, of we, had, we had someone pass out uh, during a press screening. But it's interesting because... With, Didn't they with, run out and cut their head and get a concussion he, or yeah, something he, as well? he passed out while leaving. He stood up, said, I don't know about you people, but I'm not watching another minute of this filth. Yeah, And then stormed out of a, a you know medium-sized screening room in the Palais in Cannes. Uh, and then kind of like went wobbly and collapsed as he got to the the exit. And I think he hit his nose or his forehead mm. or something on the on a big metal door handle on the way out. So he was pouring blood as they dragged him out into the foyer. And and this is kind of what I was what I was going to ask you about, which is that like the temptation must be to go like old school circus barker exploitation like pedal to the metal <laughs> when something terrible like this happens because that's definitely what tom wanted to do like, <laughs> yeah. with, with centipede but that's kind of his brand but yeah. and also like that's not as relatable a traumatic incident the stuff that's happening in centipede like you know, a lot of the stuff that's happening in Lords of Chaos that's depicted in Lords of Chaos is stuff that real people have to deal with mm. to some extent, yeah. you know, in mm. real life. Whereas very few of us have been sewn into 11 other people <laughs> in a in a, an old car warehouse in I South don't even London. know where you get that done, no. No, no it's... Well, I think it's a do-it-yourself system. It's do-it-yourself, yeah, 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 yeah. probably yeah. actually, isn't it, yeah. <laughs> um, but I remember, like, my old Laserdisc of Cannibal Ferox has a vomit bag that came with it, which yeah. itself is a throwback to the old, <laughs> uh, like, sort of shock cinema screenings of, <laughs> of America in the in the 60s, where they would give people vomit bags. Uh, Herschel Gordon-Lewis, in his, uh, in his commercials, would say, an ambulance will be standing by. Like, you know, they'd literally use that as an enticement to try and bring people in. And because Arrow is so synonymous with these catalogue titles, you did the amazing Herschel Gordon-Lewis set, like, you know, the exploitation cinema of yours is your bread and butter. Yeah. So it must have been very tempting when this stuff started happening with Oz of Chaos to be like... <laughs> it's like the old days, folks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think times have changed since... Uh, well, obviously, you know, and, and as, as, as depicted by the way you ultimately... Yeah, I, I, there are certain films that you can get away with that. I mean, you know, uh, back in the day, I've I've worked on huh, varied films like things like Zombievers or or Cult of Chucky. You can get away with leaning into that whole exploitation. I didn't know you worked on Zombievers. Yeah, yeah. I, that's I. I think that's massively underrated. I think it's massively underrated. Zombievers. Got so much publicity when it debuted, and then it kind of everybody because it had an uh, amazing title, and then people watched it and they were disappointed by it. Yeah, but I think that none of those people listened carefully to the lyrics of the background music. <laughs> There's John, so much subtle, there John, is subtlety John, going on in that John film. and Al Kaplan, who wrote the script, right. are probably most known for their YouTube videos, which are musicals of other things. Right. So they did the Commando, the musical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, a yeah. single song that sums up all of Commando. Zombievers. The, the, yeah, I remember the it. The thing, the musical... Yeah. That they uh, that that that's so good, mm. um, but they did an entire album that was a fake cast recording of a West End show that never existed mm. of Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, Silence of the Lambs the musical was a like a fake thing, <laughs> and now it's actually a musical. Like they've written a few extra songs for it, and right. it's, it's a full thing. Uh -huh. They wrote Zombievers. But the real genius in that film is the lyrics of the diegetic music. Yeah. yeah the stuff yeah. that people are listening to. So yeah, give that give that another go. 
Zombie of Us. Hey, look, hey, I really take. recommend it. Um, was know. that was that Universal? Uh, it was Universal. Yeah, we picked that up at Universal. Um, wow. So, so yeah, you can get away with that. I think you know, with Laws of Chaos, you, you can't lean into that. It's it's too tonally. It's not right to totally lean into that. I think you know, it's it's it, the film's not about that. You know, the film is not about that scene, however great that scene is, Dan. You know, I mean, and it is, but uh, all all three or you know those uh, intense scenes in the film, it, uh, it's, it's more about the journey. It's more about the film. It's it, it's a proper film. It, well, don't get me wrong. <laughs> proper film. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, William Castle didn't make. I mean, he made totally fun films, but you know, they're not like commenting on the meaning of life or anything. Uh, Whereas, I learned some pretty important life lessons from the Tingler. Well, Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> the Tingler, yeah, fair enough. But I think you know, I I, I had experience on this before when uh, we picked up uh, when I was working back at Revolver with a Serbian film, and you know, oh, there are yeah, certain you films film. you don't really want to lean into the exploitation of. And, you know, and Lord's Chaos is so much more than an exploitation film. It's it's it, it's a real human drama. It's not even horror. It's, yeah, it's, um, uh, it's, it's, it's a film about, you know, youth and toxic masculinity. And, you know, that's, it's all valid. And, uh, and some one or two amazing geniuses who made some amazing music and made some very stupid mistakes as little boys. And not what? little boys. I shouldn't really say that, but, you know, as, 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 young as younger, younger men. Yeah. made, made some tragic mistakes so off the back of that uh, obviously as the editor of our podcast you're fully aware uh, we tend to do contextual recommendations although we've been a little bit more wide-reaching and we've not talked so overtly about the film do you want to do some recommendations based on lords of chaos for people yeah absolutely yeah i'm happy to do that do you want me to go first yeah you go first you go first uh, I, okay I, so I, I pull a couple First recommendation based on Laws of Chaos this is another film I worked on back at Universal, actually, and uh, it's uh, Good Vibrations. I've uh, not do seen you Good know Good Vibrations? No, I didn't see it. Oh, it's so good. It's one of Mark Como's films of the year from, and I can't remember when it was, actually, to be honest. It's probably about five years ago. Uh, good Vibrations. Uh, it's all about Terry Hooley, who set up the Good Vibrations shop, and he was the one who discovered the undertones and basically sent uh teenage kicks to john peel and it's all the the punk story of it it's just an incredible incredibly heartwarming amazingly joyous uh, but also very punk film about you know men in ireland having that music and just uniting that that sort of town and yeah it's uh good vibrations heavily heavily recommended it stars richard dormer who you might know from game of thrones yeah, yeah. Uh, he's in it. Uh, it's just an incredible cast, and you know you can't go wrong with uh, teenage kicks as the main subject of the film. And it's just got such an incredible scene where Terry Dooley hears the track for the very first time, and no audio plays, and you just know that he's listening to just this amazing music track. Yeah, it's incredible. Good vibrations. I will one hundred percent check that out. Is uh, it still out on Universal? Is still out on Universal Blu-ray. Yeah. Nice. My first recommendation, based on Laws of Chaos, uh, is White Lightning. White? Uh, yeah, so it's with an N apostrophe, no G. Okay, um, I don't know this one. Oh my God, I genuinely think you'd absolutely love it. It's Ed Hogg. You know Ed Hogg? No. Uh, so Ed Hogg was, uh, he's in Bunny and the Bull, he was an anonymous. Okay, okay. Um, He's uh, a fantastic character actor and really, really, like... I genuinely like he should be the next big thing. He should have been the next big thing. Yeah, like that yeah. should have happened. I worked with him. Uh, I've worked with him a couple of times. He was on. Most recently, we worked on a film uh, called uh, "A Good Woman Is Hard to Find," okay, uh, which we shot over in Belgium, but is set not in Belgium, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, in which he plays a psychopath. He's a he's a fantastic actor, but in White Lightning, he plays a uh, like a a country musician mm -hmm. and it's a true story him and carrie fisher play the lead uh, play the two leads it's a black and white feature it's an astonishingly when pleasing was it made, film uh, it was directed in 2009 okay. by dominic murphy who's only ever done one other feature he did a like a uh, a documentary about like old school horror called fear in the dark right uh, back in like the early 90s which christopher lee did like voiceover and stuff so i don't i don't know very much about him but yeah white lining is this just incredible story about an 
a crazy drug fueled country musician mm-hmm. and dancer who's like out in the backwoods of the southern states, like sort of hill people territory, and it's it's high energy and it's incredible and it's another one of those ones that it did incredibly well on the on the festival circuit mm. and then you just you just didn't really hear about oh. it and it needed a Hewitt marketing it wherever <laughs> it went but it yeah it just didn't happen but it's if, if you can track it down it's really really worth watching white lightning yeah it's sounds... fucking incredible okay 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 <laughs> cool no that sounds amazing uh our second recommendation second recommendation based on Lords of Chaos is a 2007 film uh, 2007 Belgian film called X Drummer. Oh fuck yes! I you recommended me X Drummer back in the day. How did I? That did I recommend X Drummer? It's so unbelievably good. I just absolutely love it. Uh, it's not a film you can easily love, to be honest. Ooh. It goes to some really dark places. So this is this is uh, a film about almost. Uh, it's it's a film about a punk band that uh, handicapped that look they're uh, looking for a drummer and there's a handicapped drummer that. They, they kind of recruit, but it goes to some incredibly, incredibly dark places. But the soundtrack is phenomenal. It's one of my regular, regular soundtrack listens. Some insane, uh, amazing, amazing music in there. Um, hard to find now. It was released by Tartan back in the day, uh, who sadly are no You're longer an with us. Label, yeah. yeah, Tartan's so, so good. Uh, no one's uh, ever really sort of picked it up. And. Um, you know, maybe if my bosses are listening, <laughs> could so we go after X Trauma? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, X Trauma, uh, absolutely it's, love it's it. It's almost absurdist with how yeah. like a, extreme it goes at times. It's just it doesn't play by any rules. No. It opens with all of the films. It's like Henneke it level confrontation. Yeah, and uh, it just you've no idea where it's going at any one point, and just uh, it's so bad taste. Yeah, everything that's wrong with this film. If you like films that's got everything wrong about it, then it's great. It's absolutely great. Nice. Okay, so my next recommendation is Sandy Johnson's 1983 TV film, Bad News, Ah. uh, which is like the British attempt to cash in on the Spinal Tap success. Yeah, absolutely love Bad News. Oh, my God. Oh I, my I, God. I think I probably saw Bad News before I saw Spinal Tap. Right. Um, yeah, so did I. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's, and more Bad News. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. exactly. So there, yeah. So for those of you who don't know, a Comic Strip Presents was a British uh, TV thing, with the likes of which have really not been seen since, no. where a bunch of comics were just allowed to make endless, seemingly endless half-hour films. Mr. Jolly Lives Next Door... Dirty movie, tra- uh, fistful uh, of travelers, absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. fucking incredible <laughs> films. Um, but it uh, it was a, a starting ground for like um, Rick Mail, Edward Emerson, Fringe and Saunders. But you also saw people in there uh, like Keith Allen, yeah. like these amazing people who go on to have incredible careers. And uh, like Peter Cook was in Mr. Jolly Lives Next Door, yeah, uh, playing a, a professional mm. assassin, but who lived next door to. Rick Mail and Adrian Emerson in a sort of proto-bottom mm. arrangement. Absolutely fantastic. But in Bad News, uh, you have Rick Mail, Adrian Emerson, Nigel Planar, and the fourth one, whose name I can never remember. I can never remember the fourth one. Play Spider, but, the drummer. Yeah, Spider. Spider, Spider. spider. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. It's a, it's a very British uh, Bad News. The, the, the One of the fun things about it is that the music for it was written by like half of queen mm. basically and so on if you listen to the albums of it the music is incredibly tight mm. and it's because it's basically queen playing the music right for bad i news. never knew that yeah no way. okay okay yeah uh, roger taylor was was drumming for them yeah drumming's right right roger yeah yeah, he drum queen. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah yeah roger taylor's drumming for them um yeah roger taylor was playing for them like it was yeah, it was because Comic Strip was so like it's such an iconic British thing, they were able to command this kind of respect. Was this this was just after Spinal Tap, wasn't it? It I was it, it was, was about three or four or five after. years after yeah, Spinal yeah, yeah, Tap. Yeah. So they were kind of clearly riffing on a similar joke, but they just did it in such a but, brilliant but, British but way. What was incredible was that like so I saw Spinal Tap play live Oh in Royal Abbott Hall. Uh, no, no, in oh, in America, oh, in Nashville. Okay. When I was over in uh, Nashville doing Trash Humpers with Harmony Corinne, yeah, yeah. the the team, one of the team said, Hey, by the way, uh Spinal Tap are playing tonight in Nashville. Do you want to go and see them? I was, of course, of course <laughs> I do. And then they but the thing is they did like 
like two thirds of the show was Spinal Tap songs, but then they were doing other Christopher Guest based right. musical numbers. Right, right. So the what's the country Break, Breaking the Wind? Uh, uh, yeah, Thingy the Wind. Yeah, yeah, Breaking the Wind. Breaking the Wind. Um, they did some songs from that, and like I was less. Waiting for Guffman is another one, isn't it? Yeah, I don't Best think it's got show. a lot of songs. Yeah, though. yeah. Oh no, okay, yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So that kind of thing. But but the the bad news stuff. They were they genuinely did massive fucking arena shows, and like if you listen to the like. You can find the shows, but you mm. can also find the albums. And I've got I've got the vinyls of I've got vinyl of the album. <laughs> oh no way! I'm going to yeah, borrow yeah, yeah. them. I am oh. going to take them. Oh, do you want to? Well, I'm, no, I don't I'm, have a, I don't have a record player. So I'll that's put on pointless. the Christmas single in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Cashing in on Christmas, I'll put on in a minute. But but yeah, so they they did these genuinely massive shows at festivals, so they could get re- audience. They did audience. Donington. They did Donington. So, yeah, so yeah, they could yeah. do live recordings, mm. and they had whole audiences. Uh, so like uh, Adrian Emerson's character, Vin Fuego, would be like. <laughs> Uh, he'd do a fake call out to the audience, but the audience would be prepped. So he'd say, hey, hey, bad news. And then the audience was meant to say, hey, hey, bad news, but they'd say, fuck off, bad news. But it's so exciting to hear <laughs> like a joke that takes thousands of people. Yeah, to yeah, 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 yeah. It was absolutely fantastic. So yeah, it's, it doesn't have any of the severity or the, the real humanity touches of Lords of Chaos, but it's a fantastic movie about music. I absolutely And love the it. foibles and ego that go into creating music. Oh, so good. So, so good. And I actually watched it again recently. And actually cutting the trailer, cutting the UK trailer, I had to. Uh, we had to let. I had to let Jonas know that we had to cut certain shots out because they were too bad news. And he was like, "What do you, what do you mean?" He wasn't. I don't think he was fully aware of bad news. But are you serious? You no, referenced yeah, serious. it. In, there's, oh my there's the one shot of the, of the young mayhem like running towards the camera, going, hey. and I'm just thinking that's bad news. Yeah. We've got to take that out. We've got to take that out. It's just going to give the wrong impressions to UK audiences and. Yeah, luckily Jonas was like, "Okay, yeah, yeah, all right, make it shorter." Did you but send him? Did you send him bad news? Oh, we were, we uh, no, no, I didn't. Yeah, maybe I should have. Well, done I'm going to email yeah, him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, love it! Um, amazing. Well, so the next bit that we do, and the thing is, Sam always does these interstitials. Like Sam's the MC. Really, yeah, yeah. Sorry, so yeah, I'm so. not driving this one, but you're doing no, a great no, job. No, 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 you're, you, you're driving. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm in Sam's the big shoes to fill. Mm. So next we do uh, films that we've seen in the last couple of weeks. Okay. What have you seen recently in the last fortnight that that really struck you that you want to share with our audience? What have I seen? Uh, I I saw a classic that I haven't seen in a long, long time. Uh, I watched uh, Nightbreed at the weekend. Uh, I watched the director's cut, which I'd never got around to when it was when it was released. Whenever it was. Six, seven years ago, maybe. Oh, Sam's the one with the dates. Yeah, so director's cut, uh, Clive Barker's new version that was, you know, salvaged. And uh, so I watched that um, and it was Sheriff Factory's release. Having not seen it for such a long time, it, it was great to see all those like monsters that were iconic back in, you know, the day yeah. when I'd seen them originally. It's a nice, re- it's like a nice remaster. It's yeah, good. no, it's really, really good. And uh, yeah, I couldn't fully remember how I'd originally saw it of, as to how different it was, but... Yeah, Nightbreed. Um, yeah, one I haven't seen for a while. Totally enjoyed it. Oh, such a fantastic film. Always worth a rewatch, I think. Mm. The most, the one I, first one I'm going to mention is actually something I watched last night. I'm, <laughs> I, I think I mentioned the upcoming episode I'm doing for Evolution of Horror in the last episode with Sam. We're actually going to push the record to when I get back from Toronto just mm. because the zombie season they're doing is running really long. Right, right. But as part of my homework for it, and because I'm a diligent uh, <laughs> guest, uh, I've been revisiting a bunch of Jorge Grau's uh, zombie, well, non-zombie stuff, his other right, films. Right. And when people talk about his horror output, they always talk about two films. They talk about uh, Blood Castle and uh-huh. Living Dead in Manchester Morgue. Yeah. And they always overlook Code of Hunting, Cotto oh. de Casa, okay. uh, which I, other than the smattering of people who were in the screening with me uh, in like 1995, mm. 1996 at the French Institute, uh, and like a couple of really hardcore cinephiles, I don't think I've ever met anyone else who's seen, um, it's, this, it doesn't make it a, a massive endorsement it is a very good film yeah. but it's deeply fucking unpleasant a little bit like lords of chaos right. except it's not a true story so it doesn't really have that excuse um it's so and i, I will i'll go into this a bit more in a bit more depth maybe depending on whether my other mic cuts it out mike too <laughs> cuts it out uh on the evolution of horror but so uh, the thing about Living Dead at Manchester Morgue is that it's made at the end of Franco's reign mm. in Spain. So it's it's very much like 
underneath everything else, it's about the uh, like op- oppressive authoritarianism, yeah. not being able to trust the people in charge, all that kind of stuff. Flash forward to Code of Hunting, which is a home invasion horror, which I've not seen, um, okay. which is. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's incredibly hard to get right. hold of. It's, this is an awful you recommendation. You always come up with great recommendations that try, no one can ever, what ever I, see. What, what I try to do is like 75% films you can get. Right, And right, then right, right. 25% You're deep like a, cut homework. Yeah, treasure home, guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a, there's a couple of old ex-rental VHSs kicking about. I don't think it's had a... As far as I know, it's not had a DVD release mm-hmm. anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, as I don't. I certainly don't think it's had a, an English language DVD release. Yeah. But I uh, I have managed to pick up um, a, an old. I've digitized a VHS, and I've found a fan sub file, like an wow. SRT file, uh-huh, so that uh-huh. I can watch it with subs. They were woefully out of sync. So that, <laughs> that was a whole fucking week delay. Of my watching. <laughs> anyway, the point is, um, it's it's much more uh, cerebral than your traditional home invasion, uh-huh. but it still plays around with the idea of a distrust in authoritarianism. Yeah. So even though it's post-Franco when Grau made it, it's about the ineffectuality of the police, of the court system, and really, actually, at the, co- at the, the, the center of it is that this... It's about the class divide that came into play mm. after uh, fascism left Spain. Uh, and there's loads of imagery of like champagne and fancy meats. And like the, at the beginning, the, the, the leading character, who's a, a female lawyer, uh, like a female criminal attorney, she goes to a, like a supermarket and mm. there are racks of pheasants that look like something out of a, like a like an old painting. Yeah, yeah. Like it's it's traditional aristocratic opulence. Mm-hmm. And she literally like when the the bad guys who are following her from the from the courthouse to like in this case steal her car, they literally park underneath a billboard advertising champagne. So they are literally beneath champagne. Right, right. It's but but for for the vast majority of the film it's actually pretty like cat and mousey but mm-hmm. also quite tame. And then in the last like sort of the last reel it goes full on like fernando de leo to be 20 like it's it's about as much of a shift in content as you can imagine a film could have and it has a a shot in it that's still one of the most fucking horrific shots i've ever seen really and you've seen some horrific shots yeah i mean like the thing is i'm not I'm not putting it up against things like Red Sin Tower and Slaughtered Vomit Dolls and like sure. all the like okay. the, the the artistically void bullshit mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. has no reason to watch. But like as far as films that actually earn their content, yeah. it's one of the most terrific things I've ever seen. Okay. It's really and the other thing is, and for the two of you that bother to <laughs> go through the ordeal of tracking this down. Please do. And please and please send in <laughs> a tweet to Dan that you watched it. It's it's one of those things where it's like, well, I mean that can't that's not all special effects. Right. Like something someone somewhere had to like they had to sit down and talk about logistically what someone was willing to go through. I am now intrigued because you're not gonna give anything away. Not on, I don't not want you to. No. <laughs> and I am now all of a sudden but, worried. But yeah, it's a it's an astonishing film. And it's the, the thing is there are other things it harkens back to mm. and I can't say what they are without spoiling it, but it's got a really beautiful heritage in genre cinema. Like it it, it it takes from a lot of things and mm. expands on a lot of things, but ultimately it's about uh, discontent with the way people are treated by the system, right? Um, which is also kind of what Living Dead at Manchester Morgan yeah. is about. Um, and it's yeah, it's a it's a really interesting film. So yeah, Code of Hunting, Cotta de Casa, is and it's got a great poster. <laughs> that sounds great, and I would love to watch your digital file. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll share it with you. <laughs> Nice. Good. Uh, I, I need to do another recommendation, don't you I? Do. I? Yeah, I need a second one. Uh, I need to think about this because uh, we get to lo- watch a lot of uh, screeners and I can't really talk about a lot of them because we're either not with the good ones, we're either potentially interested in or uh, and the bad ones. No one wants to talk about the bad ones. Um, but we've been watching a lot out of uh, South by Southwest, I guess. What have I caught up with recently? I watched Free Solo. Have you seen the documentary Free Solo? No, I haven't. Uh, Because that's finally, finally come out on Blu-ray in the UK after a stunning 1.9 million box office run for a documentary. Wow, that's not bad. Which is just incredible. And, you know, um, it won the Oscar, which I was just so happy. And and I'd met the filmmakers Jimmy Chin and Elizabeth Chai. They're, They're just incredible. I worked with them on a previous film called Maru. Free Solo is this uh, incredible film that looks at this uh, 
unique, extraordinary climber called Alex Hunold, uh, as he becomes uh, the first man to ever attempt free solo climbing El Capitan, um, which is yeah. uh, an insane uh, cliff face uh, in in America. And forgive me, I can't remember exactly where, but but Jimmy Chin and Elizabeth Chai are some of the most amazing, talented mountain filmmakers there are going. And you know, the previous film was talking about going up this previously unscalable mountain called yeah. Maru, uh, and Jimmy's this renowned photographer. Anyway, they, they stumbled, they, they wanted to make a film about Alex's obsession about climbing up this suicidal uh, run up, 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 up a mountain. And, you know, it follows uh, familiar documentary tropes, but it's the subject matter is so engaging. This, this guy is just so obsessive o- over wanting to do this. And he's so easy with it. You know, uh, he, he, he gives all his money away. He helps charities. Just one of these, you know, really wholesome people. And watch it on as big a screen as you possibly can, unless you have vertigo, in which case don't ever, <laughs> ever watch it. Because the last 20 minutes are literally jaw-dropping. Um, incredible. Yeah, you, you don't want to breathe. You literally just don't want to breathe as, as you know, you, uh, the film unfolds. But Free Solo, massive, massive UK hit in the cinemas. Uh and, you know, uh, please, please, please go out and buy the Blu-ray. You know, it's it's not from us, but, you know, if you love documentaries. Who's I need to check. I think it's Dogworth. Dogworth did it theatrically, oh, and yeah, I believe Dogworth done it at home and as well. But yeah, yeah, they're really good. Yeah, they're, they're the UK home of documentaries, for sure. But, yeah, Free Solo, incredible. I'll definitely be checking it out. My next one is a film I got to, uh, I think it was, might be Josh from Cigarette Birds. Ah, Josh, okay. Josh. Put me up for this. Um, but I got an email uh, a while ago uh, asking if I'd be interested in coming in doing a, a Q&A with Lloyd Kaufman of oh, Troma wow. at, the, uh, at the Genesis over in East London. Yeah. I obviously have a, quite a fantastic relationship with Arrow. They do a lot of your screenings. And um, and I mentioned to them that this was nice because Lloyd had actually introduced Jen, my wife and I, oh. uh, at Cannes all yeah. these years ago. And they, oh, why the hell would they? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know that. And they're like, oh, how nice, you know Lloyd. And I've, I've interviewed Lloyd a few times over the years and, yeah. and, and it was really nice. So I, I went along and it was, uh, it was a, a retro screening of uh, Class of Newcomb High mm-hmm. and then the UK premiere of Return to Return to right. Newcomb High, the yeah, most yeah. recent one. Uh, and I got to go along and watch both films as well. So my, my, the one I'm talking about is the Return to Return to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because like, to be completely honest, for a few years now, in my opinion, Troma's gone through a bit of a slump mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. the things that I loved about Troma when I was in my teens and I was discovering this extreme cinema that was just out there to shock me, so much of that was missing, I think, from some of the more recent offerings. Mm. And while I don't think they've quite regained that glory, mm. they've got close uh, and... Uh, while they're relying too much on cheap digital effects as opposed to cheap practical effects, which yeah. have a very different uh, uh, yeah, emotional different resonance, yeah, yeah. they're now creeping into a thing. Are you familiar with Tim and Eric? Tim Heidecker yeah, and Eric Tim and Eric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't so, swim. Um, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and also um, Eric Wareheim turning up in like Quentin Dupuy's uh, pictures. And like, yeah. yeah, just... And they're, they're a fantastic comedy output. But they, they've they sort of... Like, I feel like they kick-started this uh, celebration of the bad, but in a modern context. So they're talking about like bad CGI and bad mm-hmm. graphic en- like graphic animation and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And, the, and Troma seems to have just about started to creep into that. And that's just about okay. justifying some of the yeah. modern, cheaper aspects of their their stuff it was really nice to talk to lloyd again and talk to him about like the the difficulty of finding satire in the current political <laughs> environment yeah. and that kind of thing but also it was really nice to see something that that felt more like i mean i think the big problem was that i couldn't be drunk because i had to talk right. to lloyd on stage i had to do a q a <laughs> and let's be completely honest trauma films are best when you're watching yeah. with a crowd of people and you've had a few beers Apart from maybe Combat Shop, but they didn't produce that one. They, uh, they no, didn't no, that's the distro. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they've they've done some great stuff as distro. You know, yeah, let's yeah. not forget Cannibal the Musical. Yeah. But I think that when you look at the core 
trauma titles, and especially the core trauma titles of yesteryear. Yep, yep, yep. So, you know, Toxic Avenger, nah, less said about Sergeant Cooper Command, then my pity the better. Tromeo and Juliet. Uh, Tromeo yeah. and Juliet's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even like Troma's War yeah. and Terra Firma. Mm. Uh, Terra Firma is. Um, is, a, is actually a very solid film, even though it's one of their cheapest films they've ever made. Yeah, yeah. Um, it really stands up. And so, yeah, I think that... Uh, so this is a return to the return to the return of It's, it's return trauma. to return to Newcomb High, a.k.a. Volume 2. Right. And it is a an almost return to the house. So you'd days. put a brackets almost in front. Okay, yeah, 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 brackets almost. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's still deeply offensive. That's exactly what they're going yeah. for. And sometimes it doesn't land and you're like, oh, come on, guys. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> but well, actually, here's an aside. So when I, I, I had wanted to record the, the Q&A so yeah. I could use it as an extra feature on the podcast mm. and sadly that just wasn't an, like I thought of it like an hour before we did yeah, the Q&A yeah. and we couldn't tie into their sound system but um, one of my questions was uh, was there ever anything in a film or in a script that Lloyd had felt went too far because right. you know his bread and butter yeah, is yeah, yeah, shock yeah. and and, and all everybody the- has a line well that's it or does do does they? Lloyd have so a Lloyd, line well the, what was it really interesting was that Lloyd said if I if I were brought it now I wouldn't take Bloodsucking Freaks right really? which is interesting because Bloodsucking Freaks was one of their core titles yeah. back in the day yeah, yeah, yeah. and and what I hadn't realised uh, initially was that they actually kind of rescued it and reassembled it like mm. from from uh, from stock like there wasn't a good print of it before so they kind mm. of rebuilt that film and it's a really nasty, like, it's, I think the problem with it, and this is, I, I, I use this phrase with Lloyd and he agreed, was that it's it's mean-spirited. Right. And as offensive as mm-hmm. trauma is, mm-hmm. it's always, like, kind of upbeat. Yeah, yeah. And it's never really, like... It, it, it's not it, really punching down, is it? It's punching... Well, yeah, 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 exactly. It's not punching... Well, I mean, it very, well, much, it, it, it very it, much routinely is punching down. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's a completely it does punch down, thing. It's constantly punching down. But, but not with but a mean it, spirit. But it punches... Yeah, it, the weird thing about trauma is it punches down, but it's doing it to make fun of the other people that would be punching down. Yeah. Like, it's lambasting yeah, 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 yeah. the people. It's, it's taking the taking the piss out of opinions yeah and i think that's one of the things that makes it so interesting yeah anyway so the point I, I is i love the trauma guys uh, the last two cans i can i've been out to I've, I've, I've one night i've ended up with the trauma people like walking home yeah uh you know just because you know you see them around they're so yeah <laughs> crazy in fact a uh, good friend uh, do you know liam regan uh he know. made the film banjo a couple of years ago oh yeah fuck but, i met him i met him yeah he was, yeah, yeah seen really uh, uh, bloody banjo yeah bloody banjo isn't it yes yeah, 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 yeah. yeah bloody banjo uh yeah he did a year's apprenticeship uh, with with trauma about two well, or three years ago he was there with them at the Genesis. exactly yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 so he's he's a huge 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 trauma fan and yeah, you've you've got to give them absolute kudos for just going and and carrying on and doing well, it, and it's it's but amazing. The other thing is, I think in England, which doesn't have a huge like film school tradition, mm. like in America, you know, you've got the big film schools, but in England, one of the great things about Troma was, oh fuck, I could do that, <laughs> and, and and particularly when Lloyd put out his books, mm. you know, yeah, his, yeah, you yeah. know, uh, what's it called, like uh, Make Your Own Damn Movie, yeah, and then yeah. that one he did with James Gunn. Everything I learned about filmmaking, everything I know about filmmaking, mm. I learned from the Toxic Avenger. Uh, like, are both movies about like how, you know, if you have pretty low standards, you can just do it. <laughs> yeah. And often that's kind of fine. Like, just to have made a film is a really big achievement. Just do it. Just yeah. do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's that whole ethos of you know what we can do this. Yeah, just do it. Yeah. yeah. Fuck yeah. I mean, I almost, I almost did the effects for Poltergeist. Really. It was in its very first incarnation. Which I was had its working... UK premiere at the Clapham uh, at uh, just down the road, actually Peckham. Peckham yeah, Peckham, yeah. Peckham, Well, Peckham, 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 Peckham because of Peck. <laughs> yeah, That's exactly. literally why they chose it because yeah. it was Peckham. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no. If you I make was... a film about Killer Swans, where where would you debut that? Well, Swanage. Yeah. <laughs> Or Swansea, I was thinking, but fair enough. <laughs> Swansea's far too high class for trauma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I was working in uh, I was working in Psychotronic Video in Camden, right. and Lloyd came in, and I had my meager portfolio with me as a like a know nothing, like really early in my career, just you know all wax build ups and no mold making, and uh, and and then I he came back and was and nice. said hi, we're doing these films, and he gave me the scripts. I still have them upstairs. For um for 
uh, Poltergeist and then for sh- uh, James Gunn's Schlock and Schlockability, right, which okay. has not yet been made, although I yeah. suspect like bits of it will turn up in their upcoming uh, Shakespeare's Shitstorm. <laughs> because, uh, Isn't James Gunn doing it after Guardians 3? I mean, I hope so. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now that he's back on. Well, that, because no. so James's first script for Tromeo and Juliet was all written in iambic pentameter, was which it? they okay. ditched, presumably, because it's like a fucking... Peter Greenaway level nightmare <laughs> uh, editing nightmare where you can't cut a line because it yep, stops yep. making sense. I can't trim dialogue because the fucking scansion gets thrown out. But but from the the bits I've seen of Shakespeare Shitstorm, it looks like it, at least a portion of it might be have might have been written in iambic pentameter. Okay, which is a a bold move. It is a bold for move. someone whose core audience love bullshit and trash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not exactly Shakespeare, is it? But yeah. Well, it's it's akin akin to Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah I guess that's we kind of. And akin is just like a Shakespearean word for like, isn't it? Really? I think akin is literally yeah, yeah. a Shakespearean word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that brings us to the end of this slightly peculiar Arrow video podcast. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining us. Uh, do you want to do some social media shout-outs? Uh, I could well do. I mean, you know, thanks. Uh, first off, thanks so much for for having me on on dan and uh i don't have any social media so um, you can follow me i'm raw shark 72 that's raw shark as in the way that the policeman mishears raw shark in watchman so it's spelled r-a-w-s-h-a-r-k 72 <laughs> uh, but i don't really post on twitter but follow me fine yeah <laughs> <laughs> do what you want mate yeah it's yeah, fine. yeah. Um, yeah, thank you very much. I'm at 13 Finger Effects on both Twitter and Instagram. Sam, our absentee co-host, uh, is at Sam Ashurst. So join us next time when we're going to be talking about a uh, another aspect of the process of bringing an Arrow picture uh, to you, the audience, either from archive or picking these new genre gems. Uh, thank you, Mike, again for joining me. Mm. And... Oh, sorry, Mike, you were going to say something. I was going to say that I'm not going to be that professional next time. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to be here. Well, maybe there will be another next I'm, time. You know but... what? No, let's sink this fucking ship. Sam's gone. This, right. It's yeah, a yeah, wild yeah. party from here on out. I'm going to burn it to the ground. There's no more professionality going, is there? Oh, no, I, you know, I'm just... Uh, yeah, Sam complains about me complaining about being tired. But uh, I'm, I'm super, super tired all the time. And I have no time for professionality. I'm just going to watch films. I'm going to talk to people about films. And I'm going to record me talking to people about films. And that's that's as good as it's going to get. There's no, there's no professionality. I'm sorry. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.